This talk has been translated from the work of Metropolitan Athanasios of Limassol, well known for his charisma and his great fervor for the faith of Christ. His humorous style and charismatic presence, which captured the hearts and minds of hundreds of students at the University of Cyprus, cannot be transferred outside of the Greek Cypriot dialect, which has been enjoyed by thousands of Greek-speaking listeners worldwide. However, we can benefit greatly from the crystal-clear teachings of this great man of God, who produced abundant fruit in the Lord's vineyard in Cyprus and elsewhere in the last 20 years. In this talk, he's teaching the young people at the university about the great mystery of marriage. The mysteries of the Orthodox Church are not simply prayers or nice words, but they are gifts given by the Holy Spirit of God through the Church and the priesthood, which can only be energized by the voluntary cooperation of the Christian who receives all these gifts in an embryonic form. He accepts all these potential gifts or seedlings, and he must now choose to cultivate them inside him by cooperating with the grace bestowed upon him from the mystery. The mystery and its fruits will remain inactive if we don't cooperate with the grace of God freely, or if we choose to walk away from God and violate his commandments and precepts. Results and spiritual fruits will only be produced with the free and voluntary synergy or cooperation of men with the potential grace embedded in these mysteries. Here, once again, we see the element of free will, which is an inalienable characteristic of the image of God in men. God never violates man's free will. And according to St. Augustine, he who created you without your consent cannot save you without your consent. In this year's lessons, we will involve ourselves with the mystery of marriage. We need to do this for several reasons. I need to absolve myself from the constant accusation that I'm trying to make everyone a monk here in Cyprus. So hopefully after these lessons, I hope that uh, quite a few of you uh, become married and uh, that way I can be spared from these nagging accusations. Unless, of course, they come after me once again saying that I pushed you along and you chose the wrong partner. You never know. But all kidding aside, and truthfully, the mystery of marriage is absolutely something very beautiful. It is truly amazing. And it is worth taking some time to really understand this great mystery. Someone who gains even some basic understanding can really be amazed by the wisdom of God in this mystery the inspired service, the words of grace, and the great height men can reach by living a Christian marriage. On the other hand, we need to bewail our most sorrowful present condition, 
when we witness that most of our Orthodox couples lack even the basic understanding of this God-given mystery. They don't energize these gifts, this most rich inheritance. They totally ignore the mystery since they are totally focused and exhausted by all the externals, the wedding dress, the bridesmaids, the cameras, the reception, the organ, the music, everything but Christ. The result is terrible. 300 divorces out of 800 marriages here in Limassol this year alone. This tragedy affects all of us, not to mention that we're all responsible for this type of thing, clergy and laity alike. But since we have a lot of new students here, let's begin with a general introduction of this mystery before we proceed with the analysis of this most beautiful service. Initially, we all know that God created man according to his image with all the necessary presuppositions to carry out the journey to theosis, to the likeness of God. God created man according to his image, placed him in a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, where he stayed before the fall, with his main preoccupation being the love of God. All the psychosomatic energies of man centered, focused, and moved towards God. A great image of this can be seen in the plant kingdom in the sunflower. The master of the plant, so to speak, is the sun, and the head of the sunflower will move and turn to look at the sun all day long. Likewise, man was totally devoted and given to the love of God. This does not mean that Adam was indifferent or uncaring towards nature or towards Eve, but Adam communed beautifully with the rest of creation through his harmonious communion with God. His communion with God sanctified and preserved a healthy relationship with Eve and the rest of creation. This harmonious relationship came to a sudden halt with a fall. The noetic framework of a man was suddenly altered, and all these gifts of God, all the energies of the soul, were distorted and changed into passions and sins. Man suddenly acquired a rebellious attitude in his relationship with God, which rebellion transferred to nature and his relationship with his fellow man. It is also commonly known that all the sinful tendencies, all the evil thoughts and passions enter man after the fall, and as a result of his disconnection with the sanctifying grace of God. Man was at a state of sinlessness and total purity before the fall. Man communed harmoniously with the other person and nature, enjoyed a communion of love without any evil thoughts, imaginings, or sin. His heart, mind, and soul and body was totally given to the love of God, which permeated his entire existence, and it naturally radiated to the other human and to the immediate environment. After the tragedy of the fall, man now inherits the post-fallen nature. He thinks and moves according to the sinful passions of his heart in a selfish and self-serving manner. Man's love is selfish, egotistical, and self-serving, which has nothing to do with the love of God. This egotistical, sick love 
deifies the creatures, whether the self or the body or knowledge or nature or whatever else, and in general turns finite and temporal things into absolutes. He idolizes body shapes, pleasure, ideas, wealth, health, or possessions, things that have no existence in themselves. That's why greed is a great passion and a great sin. Not because money is bad, but the heart of man becomes attached and idolizes money, gold, and silver. And since man is structured to function naturally with the presence of God in the center of his heart, Man self-destructs when he enthrones a lifeless entity in the center of his existence. Since God is the source and true author of all life, if I choose to exile him from my heart, I will stop to exist in God. I will forget about God. I will not be drawn to his church. I will not eat the body and blood of his son, which will propel me into immortality. So I am as good as dead, and Christ said this in many ways, let the dead bury their own dead, and unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So greed is idolatry, enormous self-love is idolatry, egotism, and the excessive love of husband and wife can also be idolatry. Marital love can only be perfected if it is filtered through the love of God. All this is beautifully interpreted in the mystery and orthodox service of marriage. Simply said, because of my post-fallen nature, I cannot love my neighbor, family member, husband, or wife unless I learn to love God first. Now, one of our students here may ask, well, didn't God made them male and female? Is all attraction, desire, and sexual relations sinful? Didn't God bless all these things? Were they not present before the fall? Now, some people may not know this, but the truth is that the church fathers speak very clearly about these matters. St. Nicodemus the Hagrite, who never innovates but repeats fathers of great authority, such as St. Gregory Palamas, Maximus the Confessor, St. John of Damascus, and all saintly fathers, teaches that the four male and female was the secondary will of God, put in place to accommodate men in view of the fall. God naturally foresees everything before it happens. He foresaw the fall, and his wisdom introduced the form gender and later marriage to help man achieve his original purpose of theosis. After the fall, Adam realized that he was naked. This happened after the fall. He first became naked of God's grace, and then he beheld his nakedness and carnality. He knew his wife carnally outside of paradise. So strange as this may sound to some of you, the primary will of God was the sinlessness of Adam and Eve and the continued residence in paradise, which would exclude the form marriage as we know it, and Adam and Eve would multiply in an angelic fashion, just like the angels multiplied, or how Eve came from the side of Adam, let's say. God has many ways to increase and multiply humankind. And furthermore, if marriage was the primary 
and most natural will of God, then Christ would also have to assume on his flesh this function of men, so he would not be lacking in anything. Sure, Christ blessed marriage and honored it by doing his first miracle at a wedding. And marriage is blessed by God, but it belongs to his secondary will, since marriage will not exist in heaven according to the online lips of the Lord. Marriage between male and female will not exist. However, marriage will always exist between our soul and its bridegroom, Christ, which is the greater mystery according to St. Paul. Marriage is a mystery of our church, and the church has condemned people who despised or taught that marriage is unclean or unworthy. Marriage is a great sacrament indeed, but so is virginity or celibacy. A virgin, a monk or nun, they are not single. They are not unmarried. They are betrothed and married to Christ. St. Ignatius warns his Christians that virginity is only valid and holy if it is connected to the flesh of the Lord. So I stay celibate, not because no one is worthy of my highness, but I choose virginity or celibacy to imitate the Lord and his mother and the saints. Our most merciful God gave us the church. The church accepts man as he is. The church accepts this attraction of the one person to the other, of a man towards a woman and vice versa, and incorporates this special relationship within their relationship with God. A marriage can only be truly successful and achieve its true purpose and meaning if it is assimilated and incorporated in the journey of the Christian in his higher and eternal marriage with the bridegroom Christ. If marriage becomes something autonomous, something independent, something absolute, and an end to itself, then it is not a marriage according to the church and not a marriage in God. Marriage is a means to a higher end. It is not the purpose of life. It is a stepping stone to help us and prepare us for our eternal love and marriage with Christ. The exact same thing holds true for monasticism. Monasticism is not the goal or the purpose. It is the means, the way and the method to unite us with Christ. If you will, everything else that we do in this world, in this life, does not serve an isolated purpose, but they are incorporated in a great journey to meet and unite with Christ. St. Paul is very specific on this when he says, whether you eat or drink, or no matter what you do, do it for the glory of God. We are free to occupy ourselves with any career we choose. We have freedom of movement, but the overall purpose must be incorporated in this journey to meet Christ and unite with him forever. This is also the first and most important purpose of marriage. In order to really appreciate the uh, beauty of this church service, we will glance at the sacrament manual briefly. We will look at the service book of marriage. There's a short service before the mystery of marriage called the service of the betrothal. The service of the betrothal is incorporated in the sacrament of marriage. Uh, the church does not recognize all those frivolous and secular engagement parties 
which are usually anything but sacred, although they are very helpful to the local economy. I'm looking at a priest's manual, which provides some directions to the celebrant priest, and these are usually in red letters, and I read. The priest stands before the royal doors, looking towards the two who are to be betrothed. And they stand outside the royal doors, the men to the right, and the women on the left. On the right side of the holy altar are placed the two rings. The priest takes up the censer and senses the holy icons, the bridal pair, and the people. Then the priest asks the bride if she wishes to marry the groom, and the groom if he wishes to marry the bride. So at the end of the Divine Liturgy, the priest stands at the gate beautiful, and the two candidates for betrothal approach him and stand in front of him, the man at the right and the woman on the left. Then they place two rings, one for each one, at the right side of the altar table, then the priest and the future couple proceed to the narthex, and the priest seals the heads of the future couple three times with the sign of the cross, and he blesses them and gives them lit candles and walks with them towards the altar while sensing them. As he senses them, he asks the bride if she wants to take this man as her husband, and the man if he chooses this woman to be his wife. This is done publicly, and the two must make a public confession. Now, you may be wondering why, why we have never heard of this. We have never seen anything like this in the Orthodox services. And here some of our people may get jealous from time to time from Protestant weddings of Protestant friends who pronounce their vows. Now, where did these vows come from? Certainly not from the Bible. They took them from the tradition of the Orthodox Church, along with many other things that, you know, they try to keep in their services. Vows were imperative in the early years of Christianity. Back then, the parents did not always ask the 13 or the 15-year-old daughter if she liked the bridegroom or not. The children had no say since most of the marriages were prearranged by the parents. And here, the church rises above these strong customs and upholds the free will of the person and gives an opportunity to the young woman or the young men who may be under the strong arm of the parents. In another typicon, much older than this, than this service book, uh, this statement is very analytical, much like the vows still used by the Western denominations, mostly for sentimental reasons. You know, a lot of these young people have been living together for a number of years. They have consummated their marriage time after time again, and now they come to pronounce vows. Well, these vows of the early church were very practical and gave a final opportunity to either party to exit this ordeal that may have been forced upon either one of these Christians. The church fully respects the free will of the person in all areas, and especially in this great sacrament. As Christian young people, I want you to know that you are totally free to choose your future spouse. 
Of course, as young people, as good and obedient children, it is very wise to listen to your parents. Listen to their advice. As your parents, they have more experience, they love you dearly, and they want what's best for you, no doubt. It is certainly very important to seek the counsel, advice, and blessing of your parents in such a huge step of your life. Even if you don't like your parents' opinion, try to analyze it, take it seriously, because many times your parents will be able to see something more than you can see at that present time. They can be more critical in a good sense. Their purpose is to protect you. It is not smart for a young person to totally disregard his or her parents' opinions without some deep thought and serious consideration. He must hear the parent out carefully, with respect, and truly ponder on their words. This holds true for other close family members and friends, relatives, godparents. It is good to ask the opinion of serious-minded people because marriage is one of the most important decisions of your life. Having said all this, the fact remains that regardless of how good all these opinions may be, not excluding the opinion of our own spiritual father or anyone else, I want you to know that you must freely choose that one person to be your husband or wife. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, can force you or compel you to enter the sacrament of marriage or to forcibly change your mind about the person that you chose, regardless if this person is your parent or spiritual father. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, reserves the right to hinder you from your journey to an Orthodox marriage. That's why these details are still written in the Typicon, in the traditional marriage service manuals, even though these vows are obsolete. Since marriages are hardly ever arranged and most of our young people practice their freedom of expressions and have progressed in their relations for years. Even though these questions have been out of use for years, they show the church's respect for the free will of the person. At the same time, I want you to know that since you alone are to make this choice, you must also learn to assume full responsibility for your actions. When it comes to your marriage and the person you will choose for your life's partner, it is your choice alone and no one else's. You will take under careful consideration the opinions of those around you. You will examine them closely, but the final decision is ultimately yours. It is not a good thing to be indecisive and wishy-washy for months and years. And this happens more with a young man. One day they tell the young woman how much they love her, how much they could not live without her, and uh, the next day they change their minds because their mother or aunt or cousin questioned their choice. These things are totally unacceptable and lacking of maturity. At least learn to keep your words to yourself before you are totally sure. You can't open your mouth and promise a rose garden to the other person and discuss where you're going to live, what kind of house you're going to have, and uh, you know how many children you're going to raise, and uh, what are you going to name them. And the next day you break up with that person because of your mama. This is downright cruel and inhuman. The worst kind of inhumanity. You cannot play with the other person's mind like this. 
It is best to say nothing. Keep your feelings to yourself until you are totally sure. Take your time to examine this matter from all sides, and when you are sure of yourself, then you can express your feelings to the other person. Otherwise, you will hurt the other person, and we don't have the right to play with people's emotions and feelings. This is a very serious matter. If someone feels that he needs to tell his mama and have his mama's approval before he decides, then let him do so before he commits himself to the young woman. Now, girls, you're laughing right now, but I hope it never happens to you. I constantly hear these things during confession, and I'm often ready to pull my hair out. And this happens mostly with boys, with young men. I don't know why men must run to their mamas. The girls are more sentimental, and when they become emotionally involved, they usually listen to no one. They are relentless. The boys, on the other hand, they have a strange idiosyncrasy, and, uh, you know, they run to their mother, and if the mother can make one single negative comment, you know, then the young man makes an 100-degree turn. This is deplorable. Last night, you were building all these dreams in the mind of this woman's heart and how much you adore her. And a day later, all these things go up in smoke. This is an illness. And speaking of illnesses, as a young woman, you may be subjected to close scrutinies and probes by some characters. Tell me what you did and how'd you do it and uh, how many times and with whom and how long ago and what were their names. This is totally degrading and humiliating. These probes are indicative of a man who's unable to love, a man who is in serious need of psychiatric treatment. A man who continues to ask you and probe and demand to know he needs to have a serious mental examination. This shows inability to love. When you love a person, you treat them with love and respect. And love does not envy. Love bears all things. Love does not think evil. Love does not scrutinize and humiliate the other person. Love does not think evil. Now, what's even worse, now these things that some of these young men may ask their young women who they're courting. Now, they may have done these things hundreds of times themselves, but they think that they're justified because they are men. Now, I'm warning you ahead of time because you're at an age where you may soon be dealing with these things. Unfortunately, I hear these things not only in your confessions, but I witness the breakup of families on a daily basis or the breakup of long, fiery relationships and strong romances because suddenly Mr. Romeo discovered that years ago his Juliet had a relationship or may have cheated on him or something to that effect. Instantly, all this fiery love is gone. And someone can ask, where's your love? Was your love so weak, so cheap, that the first wind gust blew it up? It blew it indefinitely away? Who taught you this kind of love? When do you love the other person, your soulmate? Only when everything is perfect? This is the time to show your love if you are a true captain of your ship. The true man, the good captain, is tested during rough seas. Here you will prove and show what you are made of. Here will show if you possess true love or a love that seeks its own, a sick, egotistical love. 
From the moment you pretend that you are betrayed and you are rejecting your partner, it shows that you have never loved him properly and unconditionally, but your love was conditioned according to how well he or she fulfilled your expectations and presuppositions. This is egotistical, worldly, and self-seeking love, the kind of love that hell will be full of. This is not a love that does not seek its own. I can venture to say that the man or the woman who loves their spouse correctly, when he or she discovers that his wife or husband suffered a fall, a spiritual injury, or even a carnal sin, they will love that person even more and try to help them up and reassure them that their love is unconditional. This is the moment that you need to show your compassion when your fallen spouse needs you the most, this is the time to show the quality and bravery of your soul, and not when everything is calm and peaceful. Now, I'm addressing college students and not teenagers, so please, I'm asking you not to enter into relationships so easily. And if you do, before you open your mouth to tell the other person, I love you, you must think about it many times, and very seriously, because we don't have the right to toy with the heart of the other person. From the moment we feel that we're ready for such a bond, we must understand that we are assuming a great responsibility, the responsibility to uphold the other person and not let the other person down. Love means that I die for the other person and not have the other person kill over because of my arrogant expectations. This is not the right way. We choose to die for the other person. Christ died for us. He did not ask us to die for him. This happened voluntarily as a result of some martyrs, but Christ did not require it. Peter offered, Lord, I'm ready to die for you, but only Christ went on the cross at that time. The proper movement is that I choose to die for the other person. I support and carry the weight of the other person, and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. We don't say my wife or my husband is my cross. I am stuck here. I have no choice. Therefore, I must endure. By clearly understanding all these presuppositions, and always with your free will, you can now proceed to look for your future spouse. Choose the one you like, not the one your spiritual father chooses for you. He has no say in this at all. Take her to him, ask for his blessing, and he should ask you, my son, do you like her? Yes? Okay, go ahead and prepare for your marriage. If you hear a spiritual father saying you don't have a blessing to marry this person, this spiritual father is also sick and he needs to get himself examined as well. This is an ill spirituality. No one has the right to intervene in the choice of a person which is totally respected by the church as well. A word of caution here from the translator. His eminence is addressing an audience of cradle Cypriot Orthodox, 100% Orthodox. And the assumption here is that these young people will bring an Orthodox person to their spiritual father and under those circumstances then you know the spiritual father has to go along and give his blessing 